And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Teddy. Appreciate that. As, as he prayed, this reminded me I had planned to start this service with a brief word on this, and then I cut it out, so now it's back in. <laughs> Just a reminder that it is a, it's a, a serious responsibility, but also a great joy and privilege to preach the Word of God. And it's my aim, and, and really... Last week was Colin's aim. It doesn't really matter who is the one preaching. It's our aim to bring you the very words of God himself. So it's my prayer this morning that you'll hear not me, not what I think or what I say, but what God says to you through his word. So thank you, Teddy, for that prayer and that encouragement. So we come now to uh, Romans chapter 8. In our study of Romans chapter 8, we come to one of the most precious promises in all of God's word. One pastor has called this the mother of all promises. And this promise helps explain Romans 8, 18. If you've been with us, uh, we've, I don't know what we're now, maybe our fourth or so, fifth or s- sermon in Romans chapter 8 itself. So I believe it was two weeks ago that we looked at Romans 8, 18. This is also a good reminder to bring your Bible with you or some access to the Bible, not just rely on what's printed in the worship guide so you can see what's before it, what's after it. But remember Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we talked about suffering and then glory. And this promise that we'll look at today helps make sense of what Paul was saying there earlier. It also helps us know what the will of God is, that the Holy Spirit prays for us for, that Colin uh, so ably preached about last Sunday. So what is this great promise? Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Some of you feel deeply the need for this promise today. There are things happening in your life that are not good. And perhaps you come and you hear those words and you wonder, how can that be true? That doesn't look like it's true in my life right now. It doesn't feel like that's true in my life. But whether you feel the need for this promise or not today, whether the circumstances of your life today are pleasant or painful, This is a vital promise for you, a wonderful promise, a wonderful truth for every child of God every day. We all need it, whether you feel it or not. For those who love God every day and in everything, without exception, God is working for your good. Every day and everything 
without exception, God is working for your good. Now, I want to ask three questions about this promise. First, who's the promise for? Second, what is the promise? What's it actually saying? And then third, how do we know this promise will be fulfilled? How do we know it's true? So first, who is this promise for? Because this promise is not for everyone. It's not true for every person. This is a promise that is given by God to his people, his children. This is a promise for believers, for Christians, for those who are in Christ, not for those who are still in Adam. Listen to verse 28 again. And notice the two qualifiers that Paul gives in regards to who the promise is for. And it'll be easy to know because it's preceded by the words, for those. So here's the verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So the promise is for those. For those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. So the promise is for those who love God. Everyone, every person was created by God, made to love him and worship him, but not everyone loves God. I wonder, do you love God today? If you do not, you cannot have the assurance of this promise. But I pray that you will. In fact, you can have the assurance this very day. I pray that today, God will open your very eyes to this incredible love that he has for you and that you will will respond today by loving him in return. This wonderful promise in Romans 8.28 is for those who love God. Well, so we might ask, well, how do I know if I love God? Well, those who love God show their love for him by obeying him and by loving other people. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So those who love God, they desire to obey him. They want to please him. You have this new desire in your heart that comes from God himself. You want to obey the God who made you, who loves you, who gave himself for you. And so you strive to do so. At the same time, you also remember what James said. James said, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all of it. And so those who love God, we recognize, beloved, that we do not keep all of God's law. And there are many times when we do not love people as Jesus has loved us. So does this mean that we do not love God? Well, what did we see earlier in Romans? How, How does God respond to us when we disobey, when we fail? Romans 5, 8, God shows his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So those who love God, we know and we believe that God gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to be crucified on the cross as the punishment for our disobedience, for our failure to obey God. And we know that the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross cleanses us from our sin, 
from our disobedience. And we respond to that great love of God for us by loving him in return. We love because he first loved us. So those who love God know they don't love him enough. We don't love him enough. But it is our earnest prayer. And we'll close our service by praying this today. It's our earnest prayer to see Christ, the glory of God, more clearly. Why? So we will love him more dearly. Why? So we will follow him or obey him more nearly. Amen? This wonderful promise in Romans 8 is for those who love God. But there's another qualifier to this promise. It is for those who are called according to God's purpose. So what does it mean to be called? Well, Paul uses that same word three times in the opening of this letter. Chapter 1 of Romans. Chapter 1, verse 1. He starts out, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Then in verse 5, he, he says that he has received this calling. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Christ among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then again in verse 7, which we used for our Pass the Peace passage this morning. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So to be called is to be divinely selected and appointed. It means God chose you. This promise is for those whom God has called. So Paul is saying, and he is going to show us in this passage, as he has been showing us throughout Romans, that salvation is 100% the work of God. And so, beloved, it is not so much your love for God that qualifies you for this promise, but God's love for you. Did you hear that? It is not so much your love for God that qualifies you for this promise, but God's unfailing love for you. This promise is for all those God has called. And all those God has called respond to his call by loving him. And to all those, God gives this precious promise. So what is this promise? The promise is, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. This is a staggering promise. It is one of the most well-known, well-loved promises in all the scriptures. It provides great comfort for those who are God's people. But it is also one of the promises that is most often taken out of context and misapplied. So today we must think carefully. We must think rightly. We must think biblically about this promise. It is a dangerous promise if we misunderstand it. Now we've already guarded against that in one way by clarifying who it's for. It's not for everyone. It's not true of everyone. It's not for those who are still in Adam. This is for those who are in Christ. But we need to clarify this promise some more. Beloved, bad theology harms people. It hurts people. If we take this promise out of context, instead of comforting God's people in their suffering, it will make their suffering worse. 
We can use the word of God to hurt people. And that's not its design. That's not why God has given it to us. If we make this promise, say something that it doesn't. So, for example, if we use it to teach a prosperity gospel, if you have enough faith, health and wealth will come your way. That's not what the scriptures teach. Or if we, if we use it to say, if you have enough faith, then God will only give you good things. Or if we use it to say something like, well, I know you didn't get the job you wanted, but that means God has a better job for you. Or you didn't get into the college you wanted to get into. That means God has a better college for you. You didn't get to marry the person you wanted to. That means God has a better person for you. That is not what this promise is about. It's not what it is saying. And if we teach it in that way, not only will you suffer the all things of life, painful circumstances, disappointment, but now you'll have to deal with the grief and anger of feeling betrayed by God. And you either will doubt the truth of his word or you will struggle to trust him. So what is this promise actually saying? What does all things mean and what does good mean? Well, all things is pretty easy to understand. All things means just what it says, just what it sounds like. It means everything, every event of life, every, any, all things. So beloved, this is a wonderful promise in the midst of a sobering reality. The promise that all things work together for good is a great comfort to us because not all things are good. The Apostle Paul wrote this. A real man who lived at a real time in history. Yes, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit inspired Paul to write these words. Do you know what Paul experienced in his life? A lot of things that were not good. Last week, Colin mentioned Paul's thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what that was, but Paul called it a messenger of Satan to harm him. And he pleaded with the Lord over and over and over again to remove it And God didn't. So this was a persistent, painful circumstance in his life. Paul experienced conflict with precious partners in ministry, and they parted ways. He had another one of his ministry partners desert him and abandon the faith. Paul suffered the death of many of his closest friends, fellow apostles who were spreading the gospel just like him who were put to death for their faith. He had real enemies. More than 40 of his fellow Jews made an oath. You know what? They they said they wouldn't eat or drink until they had killed Paul. That is some serious opposition. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lists some of his afflictions, and he says that he was put in prison many times. He lost track of how many times he was physically beaten. Can you imagine? It happened so often, he couldn't even count it anymore. He was often near death. He does remember 
that five times he received this brutal whipping, a common punishment in, the, in that day for the worst of criminals, the 40 lashes minus one. That happened to him five times. What Jesus suffered right before he was crucified. Three times he was beaten with rods. One time, mob violence against him stoned him and left him for dead. Do you realize what that means? It means Paul was lying there bleeding profusely, unconscious, and they thought he was dead. He was shipwrecked, not once, not twice, three times. Spent a night and a day adrift in the sea. He said he was in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. And that day, it was Jews and Gentiles. He's in danger from everyone. From my own people, from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. There was danger everywhere he went. He says he spent many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And and then also he, he, he wraps it up by saying this. Besides all that, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. These are not good things. They're painful things. They're difficult things. In 2 Corinthians 1, he describes these afflictions he experienced and he says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. You ever hear someone say, God won't give you more than you can handle? Beloved, bad theology harms people. It's not true. It's not in the Bible. God will not give you more than he can handle. But every day, he'll give you more than you can handle. Why? To teach you not to rely on yourself, but on him. Paul was given more than he could handle. He suffered a lot of the bad things in his life. Was this promise true for him? All things work together for good. Is that long list of afflictions that Paul suffered, to which each one of you can add your own list, are they included in the all things? What are all things? Beloved, all things includes the worst things you can imagine. Your worst sorrows and sufferings. They are all part of the all things that God will work for your good. Now listen, this is important. These things in and of themselves are not good. Don't say that they are. Call it what it is. The prophet Isaiah said, woe to those who call evil good. So that list that Paul had, that list that you have, lament, mourn, grieve, sorrow, When you see, when you suffer evil or wickedness or injustice or oppression or death, these are intruders to the world that God created good. Don't call them good when they're not. And beloved, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked when these bad things happen to you. They will. They will. We must get ready 
for it. We must expect it. We must prepare for it. But we also pray that these bad things would not shipwreck our faith. And one of the prayers of Jesus I love the most is when he said to Peter, Satan has demanded that he could sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And his faith didn't fail. Why? Not because of Peter's strength, but because Jesus was holding him fast in the midst of the difficulties of his life. Beloved, may we not let these bad things shipwreck our faith. How we think about them, what we think about them, can either be an attack on our faith or it can drive us to trust in and rely on our God. Paul said, all those things happened to him to teach him not to rely on himself, but on God who raises the dead. So here's the promise, beloved. All things, the good and the bad, all things work together for good. All things, for those who love God, those who have been called according to his purpose. God works through everything in your life. The good and the bad, the best and the worst, the big grand details and the smallest ones. God Almighty who raises the dead works in and through them all for your good. Beloved, God is a shield about you. He is not bringing or letting anything into your life that he will not ultimately work for good. No exceptions. All things work together for good. Now, that's half of it. What does good mean? This is such an important question for this promise. Beloved, you do not get to define what good is. And be glad you don't because how you would define it is not near as good as what God is doing and bringing to you. Listen to verse 28 again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That last phrase defines the good. According to his purpose. And that purpose is spelled out for us in verse 29. Listen to it again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what is the good? The good is that you would be conformed to the image of God's son. That you would be made like Jesus. This is your sanctification. The good that God promises that he is working through all things of your life is not earthly comfort, but conformity to Christ. And this conformity to Christ glorifies Christ. So God has an aim in it. Listen to verse 29 again. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So this means that God is growing a huge family through his son, Jesus Christ. And the aim is that in this huge family, which we are privileged to be a part of, we who are in Christ, who love God, who are called by him, the aim is that in this family, Jesus himself would be the firstborn. 
Now that same word is used in Colossians chapter 1. Paul tells us in that book that Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So that word preeminent helps us understand what firstborn means. So when God promises, all things work together for good. The good is that you will be made like Jesus. That is good. But that's not the end of the good. It's not the aim. The good goes beyond simply your conformity to Christ. It is a multitude of brothers and sisters made like Jesus, where Jesus himself is the firstborn, preeminent, where Christ is of first importance, most important. He is supreme. He is magnified in your life as the treasure of your life. So the ultimate good is that Jesus Christ himself is glorified in your life, beloved. And God is doing that in all the details of your life. He is bringing it to this end. Working all things in your life for good, the ultimate good, that Jesus Christ may be praised. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? He is. Beloved, God does not promise you better life circumstances if you love him. He promises you something much better. He promises you an eternal good, an eternal joy that goes beyond your circumstances, that's not dependent on your circumstances. And he's going to bring this to you regardless of whether your circumstances are pleasant or painful. It's not a promise for better life circumstances. It's a promise of a better life. Of life itself. Eternal life. Friendship and fellowship with God. Jesus Christ glorified in your life. You will be like Jesus and you will be with him forever. Amen? Amen. One more question. Well, that sounds great. How do we know it's true? How do we know this promise will be fulfilled? This promise cannot be true. It cannot be fulfilled unless Jesus himself, God in the flesh, died and rose again. Verse 29 and 30 make it abundantly clear that every aspect of our salvation is 100% the work of God. And so God himself will see to it that this promise is fulfilled. It is so certain that Paul speaks of it as if it's already been done. Look at verse 29 and 30 again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There are five important words in these verses that form an unbreakable chain of God's work of salvation in our lives. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. So let's look briefly at each one. Foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. Well, what does that mean? Well, for means before. So some would say that this simply means that God knew beforehand who would believe in him. 
As if, since God is all-knowing, he looked down through the corridor of time and he saw, he knew beforehand what would happen. That is not what it means. That is not what the scriptures teach. That word for know means to choose or to set your love on. We could translate it, those whom he foreloved. It's speaking of a covenantal affection for his people. So in the Old Testament, this word appears often. And it's usually not translated as no. Sometimes it is. But for example, in Genesis 18, God's coming to Abraham and he says, I chose you. It's that word. He chose Abraham. He came to Abraham and made this promise to him. In Jeremiah 1, God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah and he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It means I loved you. I chose you. Listen to what comes after that. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you. These words are describing what that means. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So this promise that we're seeing in Romans 8 was made to you before you were ever born. God set his love on you and he determined to do good for you. This is how you know it will be fulfilled because it's something God is doing, not something you make happen. God determined to love you forever. Those whom he foreknew He also predestined. Predestined means to decide beforehand, to appoint beforehand, to foreordain. Ephesians 1 tells us all about this. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So before the world was created, God appointed you for adoption. He chose you to be his son, to be his daughter. And so why does Paul bring this out here? Why does he bring this out here now? Because he wants to comfort us. He uses this word predestined to comfort us, to assure us of this promise. Something that is predestined is fixed. It's certain. It's unchangeable. So for those who love God, you have a promise You can count on a promise that is absolutely fixed. No matter what, it will not change. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Now this calling by God cannot be refused and will not be resisted. Because when he calls you, he causes you to be born again so that you want to respond to this call. See, those whom he called in this way, he also justified. That means all that God calls in this way are saved. This is what the Westminster Shorter Catechism refers to as effectual calling. Effectual means it works. It accomplishes its intended purpose. The call Paul is talking about here makes something happen in your life. It doesn't just invite you to something. It compels you to something. It makes it happen. It's not an invitation that can be resisted. This is not optional. You know what this call is? This is the all-powerful, life-enabling call of Jesus at the grave of Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. God gave him life and he responded. This is God calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
This is God bringing to fruition the plan that he made for you before you were born, before the world was even created. All those whom he called, he also justified. Now this word justified, we've talked about this a lot already in our study through the book of Romans. And it has been a constant emphasis of Paul's that this is something done by God. We do not, we cannot justify ourselves. This is something that only God can do through the life and the death and the resurrection of his own son. So God does this entirely apart from us and our works. No merit of my own. His anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. So we've heard, we've learned that justification is a legal term. It means to declare righteous. It's the opposite of condemnation. That's why we've, Paul has been making this argument, Romans 1 through 7, he comes to chapter 8, the very first verse, and he says what? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is why I've been saying over and over and over again, for those who God has justified, how much sin is in your account? None. Do you believe it? That's great news. How much sin is in your account? None in the eyes of God. How much righteousness is in your account? The perfect, full, complete righteousness of Christ. That is great news. Do we live like that is true today? No condemnation. Thanks be to God. The righteousness of Christ. How how can that be true? It is true. Amen. Who made this happen in your life? Not you. Not your works. God did. Through Jesus alone. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. To be glorified is to be with Jesus in heaven. It's what we long for. To be with Jesus in heaven. When this promise of Romans 8, this staggering promise, is finally and perfectly fulfilled, and we are made perfect in body and soul, free from sin and suffering and sorrow and death. That whole list of afflictions burned up, gone forever. No evil, no wickedness, no sorrow, no death. And we see our Savior face to face. And we are with Him and we love Him and praise Him forever. Now, how does Paul speak of this? He says, those whom He justified, He also glorified. It's past tense. He speaks of it as, it's, as if it's an accomplished fact, as if it already happened. Why? Because that's how certain it is. You know, for us, this glorification, it, it lies ahead of us. The fulfillment of this staggering promise in Romans eight twenty eight lies ahead of us. It's something God is doing. It's not complete. He's, he's at work making it happen, but it lies ahead of us. But because it relies on God's action, not ours... It is so certain that Paul speaks of it in the past tense as though it already happened. So how do we know this wonderful promise is true? How do we know this wonderful promise will be fulfilled? One reason, the main reason that we can be sure that all things work together for our good is because our entire salvation from beginning to end is all of God. 100% the work of God alone. This is a work that God decided to do in your life. He made that decision. This is a work that God has begun in your life. 
It's a work he will complete in your life. All things work together for good. Beloved, do you trust God to fulfill this promise? Do you believe he will? Well, how would trusting God to keep this promise make a difference in your life today? How will it make a difference when it doesn't feel like this promise is true? You know, God made a similar promise to his people in the Old Testament. I'd encourage you to memorize, I already did, all of Romans chapter 8. I know it's a lot. It's worth it. Uh, I would not encourage you to memorize Romans 8.28 by itself. That's how things get taken out of context. Memorize, at least memorize 8.28 through 30, if you're going to memorize 8.28. But I also encourage you to memorize Jeremiah 32.40 to 41. It's the Old Testament version of this promise. <clears throat> God says this, I will, make that, I will make with them, with my people, an everlasting covenant. What does everlasting mean? Forever. An everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Did you know God said that to you? That is a wonderful promise buried in Jeremiah in the Old Testament. We love Romans. Do you love Jeremiah? That is a wonderful promise. An everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. The reason once saved, always saved is true is because God's the one who puts the fear of you in his heart and he won't let you turn from him because he's holding on to you. I will rejoice in doing them good. Not reluctant. He rejoices in doing you good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. It's a promised land. They experience that, and we are waiting for our promised land experience. So, beloved, whatever happens in your life, how's this going to make a difference in your life today? Whatever happens in your life, you can know. Whatever it may be, it cannot be God turning away from doing good to you. So you can remind yourself, as painful as this may be, God has not turned away from doing good to me, and he will not. He will never turn away from doing good to his people. He planned to do good to you before you were ever born. He has done good to you in calling you into his family. He is doing good to you right now and making you more like Jesus, and he will do good to you in bringing you to glory. So when bad things happen, we can say with the Apostle Paul, you may be afflicted in every way, but you are not crushed. You may be perplexed, but you are not driven to despair. You may be persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Because no matter what happens, whatever you face today, you know there is zero chance, no chance, that what is bad or what is evil will rule in your life. No matter how bad, how painful, how difficult life may be, God will. Work in it for your good and his glory. The psalmist said, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So trusting God to keep this promise will change not just how you think about what happens in your life, but it will change what you think about, what you focus on. So because this promise is true, 
You do not look to what is seen. You do not fixate on your present circumstances. Instead, you lift your eyes. You look to what is unseen and you fix your eyes on Jesus. You look to the cross, Christ crucified, risen, ascended, reigning. Beloved, God has given you this promise of comfort. And he has given his son to make this promise a reality. To assure you that he loves you. To assure you that he can be trusted. And to provide a savior who can sympathize with your suffering. Jesus knows what it is to suffer and so he sees you. He sees your suffering and he knows what you are going through. And he is committed to working even through that to bring you good. That you'll be made like Jesus and Jesus will be glorified in your life. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your souls, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen? Amen. Amen.